We will start this in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, this is Joe Miyake with the Operation Long Game podcast, and I'm talking with Dale Yuzuki uh, on Zoom. Dale is the author of a new coronavirus book, uh, and then I'm forgetting the exact title of the book, so Dale, could you please sure. say what it is? It's called COVID-19 from Chaos to Cure, the bio- and the subtitle is The Biology Behind the Fight Against a Novel Coronavirus. Cool. And then um, obviously we're going to jump into it kind of more detailed, but what's the, you know, what's the basic elevator pitch of the book? Right. Sure. There, I already see the end of this pandemic and it's going to be through three major fronts of a war, frankly. It's diagnostics, it's therapeutics, and it's vaccines. And the timing, right, on the vaccine side, you saw the news, everybody's seen the news about Pfizer's 90% effectiveness. Yeah. Seen the news the same day on Monday, the FDA issued an EUA, an emergency use authorization for an Eli Lilly antibody. This is for therapy, okay? okay? So another weapon in the fight against a novel coronavirus, right? Okay. If we can just lower the death rate, right? Yeah. Yes, you know, people will still get infected, but it's not going to be nearly as harmful, right? The concern in terms of deaths. And in terms and- of lowering that death rate, um, what, I mean, is it the vaccine that's going to be most helpful? Is it therapeutics? Is it, I mean, obviously there's, you know, it's complicated and there's plenty of things, but yeah. when you look at the data and things, what, what do you see is going to be the biggest contributing factor in yep. that goal? Yep. There was a research paper that came out in the American Medical Association Journal, JAMA, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, showing that from the beginning in March through May, the hospitalization death rate was about 27%, okay? 27% of the individuals admitted the hospital died. And we're talking about hospitals in the New York City area. They were not overwhelmed, at least from all all the work that I could tell, they were not overwhelmed, right? With, uh, in terms of overcapacity, right? Yeah. You remember at that time, we had the, the, Ship Mercy, we had, you know, Javits Center. I mean, they were all waiting for overflow that never happened, right? Right. Well, the death rate through August and September, the hospitalization death rate went down to 7.6%. Okay. They're going, oh my gosh, that's a third, meaning it went down by two thirds. Right. Now the explanation, you might say, well, what happened? But you see, the very fact that there's been such great communication between physicians. Okay. There's, so there's been a number of simple practices. You remember all the uh, sort of concern about non ventilators. Well, at the, at, it turned out that your chances of surviving once you put on an elevator, ventilator was only 12%. 88% of the people who were put on ventilators pass away. Really? Now, Ventilators are typically used for something called ARDS, which is like a, a respiratory syndrome where people basically, right, their oxygen saturation gets really low. They're going to die unless they get put on a breathing machine, yeah. right? The survival rate uh, in that case is about 20%. So you can say with 
uh, SARS coronavirus two, okay, you know, your, your survival rate's not that much better. So, um, but nonetheless, I think one of the take home was, okay, we need to do, physicians have learned, to not, to not to put people on ventilators so quickly, right? Interesting. Other things, such as what's called high flow cannulas in terms of like a lot of oxygen, right? Okay. And you know, we even use these BiPAP machines for sleep apnea to help get, right, people breathing more. Yeah, yeah. Use prone positions, just flipping people on their stomach, okay? Interesting. To help them, would help them. And of course, they've got a lot of clinical trials going on to, to do sort of randomized testing to be able to, to, to show some of the effectiveness of these techniques. But those are sort of like the current practices within the hospital environment. Okay, so that's one piece is inside the hospital environment, certain practices like that. Okay. Then we yeah. have medications, right? And Trump, right, ended up getting uh, infected. Yeah. They yeah. gave him remdesivir early, and there is evidence that it works very well early. And they also gave him a clinical trial, right, monoclonal antibody from Regeneron, okay. that also in massive doses. You know, when they said they gave him eight grams, I thought it was a typo. I really? really did. Because that's like what is that for? How I mean, how much bigger is that in terms of a dosage size than what you would expect? I was expecting maybe in the milligrams, the low digit milligrams, you know, maybe 10 milligrams, maybe 50 milligrams. Wow. Understand a gram is about the weight of a dime. Yeah. So imagine 80 cents worth of protein. I mean, yeah. that's injected. It's just, I, I, I was just a gong. Right? Really? <laughs> yeah. Like, very oh surprised. God. Yeah. But nonetheless, right. It was able to take, you know, the replication of the virus and just knock it out. Now, you know, this, I haven't been able to dig into the recent EUA. You know, it's just been a flood of news just in the last two days. But, you know, so remdesivir was one, right? You've got, um, you know, the, these other clinical uh, uh, um, or medications that are ongoing. And then there are even other medications that you may not have know, know about that I actually address in the book and actually came out in the news. Pepsid, okay, is really? antamid. I, I can't remember the the generic name. Pepsid is the trade name. Okay, but it is again another medication, right? It's safe to take and extremely effective. Okay, so you know these kinds of of advances in treatment is another piece, right? In terms of there are medications and different things that are being used that also lower the death rate. Okay. Now, a third thing is interesting, right? We're in a, a time of, so, of social distancing and mask wearing. Right. Right? Yeah. Does it help? Absolutely. I mean, there is a scientist on Twitter. He put together a Swiss cheese model, right? Okay. Masks aren't perfect. They will let some virus through. But then you add that with social distancing, that helps a lot too. You limit crowded spaces that are indoors in terms of dining or meetings or, or what have you. That's right. another, you know, help. Yeah. So you can say that really people are getting lower dosages. By that I mean when somebody gets infected, it might it's be even though they're wearing a mask. Right. And it may have been, you know, they, they, they tried to practice social distancing, right? But they caught it somewhere. 
right? Yeah, yeah, just but, somewhere out of the blue. Right, but what that inoculum actually could have been less just due to the practices that we're doing today. Okay, so, and then I I'm mean, curious in your, um, kind of in your studying, what, what was some of the, have you seen any kind of data on the effectiveness of masks in terms of um, the output, in terms of, you know, like my actual, the moisture coming from me or protection, like what, what kind of data have you seen from that? There, there, there's some fascinating things. We can go on and on about that. Okay. Um, for example, there has been work done. There are a, there's a populate, subpopulation of individuals, about 20% of individuals that either speak in a certain way, have the mechanics of their larynx set up in a certain way where they aerosolize a lot. Like they are, a lot of moisture comes out of their mouth? A lot, not, a lot, not only moisture droplets, but tiny little aerosols, okay? Droplets only go a certain distance, which is why, right, six feet, right? Oh, okay, yeah. Off and, the ground. Okay. But aerosols, think of it as a fog, right? That think just stays in the air. Think of it as somebody, say, passing gas, right? I mean, it's a bad analogy, but it's but... like the smell lingers, right? Yeah. Those are aerosols, right? Interesting, okay. And, and this one study, and again, very little work has been done, but there's some really interesting research that, you know, out of, you know, a, a sample, I think it was 40 people, five of them were super um, aerosol people. <laughs> and I was like, interesting. what is it about these aerosol people? So that was, you know, one thing in that I, I don't know if I'm one out of the one out of the eight people, right, that that aerosols a lot than 20% or one out of five, whatever the, you know, that the sort of small but significant percentage. Yeah. Um, and you said but, five out of 40. It was five out of 40. Okay. But then when you when you talk about something like, well, Dale, what about just the principle of a mask? It's got to help, right? Because you have a stream, right, of right. aerosols you have some kind droplets. Of you have something to help disperse that, it's gotta help. I mean, it's just logical. Right? Yeah, and I'm and, curious then, like you're, you're saying then, I mean, it helps both on the intake of air and not just the, the output, or is it more of an output thing or both? Yeah, that's a, that's a tricky one, right? Depending on the fabric and, and a number of things. Yeah. Maybe you can put it this way. Um, I mean, the Czech Republic had a nice slogan at the beginning of, of the pandemic, right? You know, you protect me and I protect you. And this is this idea of I'm wearing a mask for your benefit. Right. I'm wearing a mask just to interrupt my own, right, uh, dispersion. That was the emphasis, right? Not so much protecting you on the inside, but protecting you from the source, now, one of the nasty things about this virus, right, is that the peak infectivity is before you get symptoms. Yeah, and what peak. kind of, I mean, that's, that's so, kind of the real, the rub of it. I mean, the rub was, of it, it's like, I can get sick in two days from now, right? Right. And I'm infectious right now, infecting everybody I'm talking to. Right. But you look healthy and you look, I fine. look healthy. I feel fine. It, I should be, I should be fine. Right. I can't tell the future. And that's one of the nastiest things about this, right. Is that, you know, that I cannot tell the future and you know, this sort of one week after exposure, it takes about a week, but 
uh, of you know where where that virus really goes up, that's pre-symptomatic. Interesting. The other thing okay. you may have heard of R zero, the R naught. You know this idea of of um, uh, the uh, this is the replicative factor. This is a number by which you know the virus is is replicating, and if it's R naught is greater than two, we have exponential growth. If it's less than two, it's slowly dying, right? Because okay. it's it's no longer this logarithmic exponential growth. Yeah, that assumes that we have sort of equal dispersion, where you have one person infecting two people and they infect two people. Okay, it's not like that. You're familiar with Pareto. The Pareto like Pareto principle, eighty percent. Yeah, like twenty rule. Yeah. yeah, believe it or not. This virus, the coronavirus, acts in an 80-20 fashion. That 80% of the people who are infected is only by 20% of the individuals. Now, it's not exactly that, okay? Right, but it's kind of that. Yeah, one contact tracing study published about a month ago, this was in India, where they traced, I think it was 170,000 cases. It was the largest contract tracing ever. 60% 60% of the infections were caused by 15% of the individuals. Now think about that. The vast majority of people who got infected didn't pass it on to anybody. Okay. And, and then, mm. and I guess you're thinking it might be because of that, like unique aerosol, like it might be the unique aspects of the individual that then makes it easier for that type of person to transmit certain diseases from how they talk or how they speak. Exactly. That is so, that is really weird. It is really interesting. Yeah. And the problem now is we can't, we don't have a diagnostic to find out who those super spreaders are. There's still mystery people. (laughs) I mean, that's really too bad for those people too, because it's like, you know, they were they were just born with these weird biological yeah. circumstances. Well, it, it's ironic, right, that one of the super spreading events early on was a Biogen business conference. So this is a pharmaceutical company in Cambridge, in Boston, area, okay. Massachusetts. Yeah. They had a, it was a commercial meeting. It was probably, I think it was maybe 200, 250 people there. That one event is responsible for 3% of all cases in the United States. When was that? It was like in February. Really? Yes. It was early, early on. And it was before that fateful March 11th day, right? When everything, the world just came down, you know, right? The, you know, everybody yeah. got sick and the, the Utah Jazz game was interrupted and all that, right? Yeah, all yeah. Uh, but it was that Biogen meeting that was a super spreading event. Now, who, who was it? You know, they, they studied, and this is where the genetic analysis comes in handy. So even though the virus mutates very slowly, right, you're able to trace through the mutations that the virus picks up uh, through time, the origins of a particular substrain, right? Interesting. So that's how they're able to say, okay, we had this event, Right. Now we're able to trace where it went, where that event went yeah. through that substrate, and then, and then do uh, you know some epidemiology and some calculations. And so that that analysis was done uh, about a month ago, and it was fascinating. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, those are huge numbers, right? Interesting. Now, 
now, so the emphasis, right, is not so much then, okay, we know what we're looking for, the super spreading individuals, we don't know exactly how to measure that, and perhaps the diagnostic effort, even this idea of surveillance, being able to just give everybody a test, you know, wouldn't that be great, right? Just give everybody a test. Well, yeah, I, yeah, I'm not a fan of like the ever, but I know exactly what you mean in terms of the data, obviously, the, the, yeah. the data would be great, but yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, it, it, there's a whole bunch of issues with it, not the least of which is we don't have the luxury of time to conduct the kind of studies you need to, to have to understand the weaknesses of a given test that can produ be produced on the scale of hundreds of millions, right? Right. So, you know, at, at, at present, I would say that we've made some really great strides. I say on the diagnostic side, I say we, in terms of an industry and, yeah. and you know, the, the uh, as far as how, where we are, you know, one of the things I monitor, right, is, yeah, daily infection rate, as well as the daily death rate, mm -hmm. understanding that this is the best data we have. And yet, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, wow, you know, um, in the United States, there isn't any political, and one of the interesting things about the book I wrote, right, was, was would I be able to avoid politics? And, you know, the other people are much better qualified than I am to okay. talk about the political, you know, aspects of it. Yeah. My expertise was around sort of the biology. I understand the biology around how diagnostics work and how they're regulated and how the FDA has been extremely flexible and aggressive in getting tests out there and approved and scaling. I mean, we're doing on the order, I think the last number I saw was over a million tests a day. So, you know, there's a lot of testing going on. And I think that even though the cases are going up, you know, from a therapeutics and a vaccines point of view, there's a lot, a lot of really great work being done. And yeah. the death, you know, that, that spike in deaths has not been consistent with the rise in cases, right? Because, you know, you, you see the headlines and, it, and it's fear-mongering, but it, and it, it is a concern, right? Yeah. There is record number of cases. Well, and that's, and that's another thing that I'm curious to hear from you is where do you think, um, where do you think the fear is misplaced or the, the it yeah. is fear mongering, right? But it, it's yeah. not actually that. And where do you think um, the, the fear is accurately reflecting the situation? Sure. I would say that in many ways, the fear on the emphasis of cases, right? is a little bit overdone because- In terms of numbers of cases reported. Yeah, numbers of cases is alarming, right? Right. What would be more alarming is an overwhelmed medical system, right? That is the fear, is that when you okay. have a rise in cases, you have a rise of moderate or severe COVID disease, right? Yeah. And, and then you have overwhelmed hospitals and you have a lot more people dying than, than should die, right? When I say should yeah. die, you know what I mean? A yeah, lot yeah, in terms death. of should statistically, yeah. obviously, Needless yeah. Death, right, a preventable death, maybe I'll put it that way. Yeah. Um, and I think the, and, and so that is a concern, right? Now, uh, you know, it, it, and then I think the other piece is that that message regarding cases should be with the reinforcement of the basic measures that people need to take. 
and one of those basic measures, avoid prolonged indoor group meetings, right? The, the Japanese have like a three C's kind of slogan, right? Okay. What is that slogan? Uh, you know, I was just looking at it before and it's like already I forgot it. It's like avoiding crowded places and avoiding, yeah, see now I can't remember. He's put me on the spot. Okay, but it's but it's it kind is, of, a, it's around um, kind of like reducing the probability of spreading something. That's the- Right, that's the a, a lot of it is an enclosed space with poor ventilation. Okay. I, I bring up several different cases uh, in the book where uh, some pr uh, really good work was done in Korea and in China early on, as far as contact tracing, looking at the uh, uh, ventilation flow of a restaurant, for example, and actually following up on the individuals who got sick, where they were sitting at each table, which direction the ventilation was going in, yeah. and uh, uh, you know they, they followed up on everybody, and then who didn't get sick and where they were sitting. Another one was a Korean call center. And you know, the, the bottom line, as far as these illustrations go, is that it's relatively hard to get infected. By that I mean, so for example, somebody in quarantine in a household, right. you know, the primary people at risk are other members of the household, and the yeah. transmission rate within a household is about 12%. Really? that's pretty low when you think about it. Right? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, there, you might say, oh yeah, are people taking all these precautions? Yes, they take as, as, as much as their living situation can allow. Right. But it, it, it is, when I, we talk about this, you know, uh, uh, Pareto principle and this, you know, 15% responsible for 60% of the cases, right? Yeah. That for the majority of people who get sick, you know, it's, it, they don't transmit it to others right interesting and, okay yeah and it's only that that certain percentage of people for whatever reason yeah. that is yeah. more likely to transmit it yeah and from a public health or messaging point of view when we talk about fear-mongering right right i mean people are tired everybody's tired right everybody wants to go to some sort of normalcy and then it just becomes a matter of give me uh, let treat people like adults and yeah. let's talk about realistic risk. Does that make sense? What is the realistic risk? Yeah. One, I think you brought up you brought up a good point too of, of treating people like adults in that, you know, we we just can't it would seem impractical to if we all had to live by whatever, a set of 20 rules all the time. And as soon as you break one yeah. of those 20 rules, then like yeah. we're all we're all trying, we all wanna to have freedom in our life. Yeah. But at the same time, this is, yeah, obviously a, a fairly big thing. So, yeah. I guess so that balance, right? That balance and that discussion needs to take place. Yeah. Right? It needs to be debated and people need to talk like adults. I mean, uh, I was part of a, a effort early on uh, called One Day Sooner. It's one day, the number one day sooner.org. One day sooner. collected tens of thousands of signatories around the world for people to volunteer for challenge trials. What is this? Yeah. Purposely infecting individuals to test the power of the, vi of the vaccine. Okay. And the okay. thinking there, the sooner we know something's effective, the better. 
I only yeah. participated in one conference call and it was so predictable. What, what happened? The ethicists, just they go around and around and around saying, okay, there's no treatment, right? Okay. There is no cure. Okay. Therefore, there's a non-zero risk that somebody's going to get infected on purpose and die. And we just, you know, can't, can't allow that. Interesting. And logically, you just say, this makes complete and utter sense. And if I die, if I know that risk going in and I'm the one whose number is up and I die because of it, yeah. it's for a decent cause for crying out loud because yeah. the amount of harms due to, right? kids not being in school is a big one, right? And, you know, these non-essential workers that, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, you think about all the industries that have completely shut down, right? The entertainers, yeah. right? The oh, restaurant yeah. servers, right? The small business owners. I mean, the, the harms are just multiplied. And, and so, um, and, and what's positive though, in that the UK is ahead of the US, and that they they have on their planning, right? They're still working through the ethical considerations and the final approval, but they have a proposal now in January to start challenge trials with relatively young volunteers. We're talking about people in like the 18 to 25, I think, range is what okay. they want. And then when did you say they were gonna do those tests? In, in January. In January. In January. Okay. Now, the first experiment they're gonna do is finding out what the minimum infectious dose is. Do you really oh, right, you to still see. don't know what the yeah. minimum is for you to get sick? Yeah, so like, then we don't we don't know what to protect ourselves against because we <laughs> exactly yeah. we, we have ways to measure how much live virus people have, right? Right. And, and I mean they're cumbersome methods to find that out. It's not the same as a diagnostic test. You're you're, you're you need special uh, techniques and special uh, equipment and special reagents in order to do a live virus test. But nonetheless, right, it's a really important thing to measure in terms of how much do I need to get sick. Right now, we have animal models, ferrets, and you probably heard about the, the mink situation in Europe. Uh, right? I didn't, I didn't uh, hear about that. Oh, okay. Well, they're, they're going to destroy millions of minks that were raised for their fur because they've got the same coronavirus as humans do. And the fear is, is that they're going to be this big vector, right? Yeah. You know, channel to infect other people. Um, and ferrets also get coronavirus. And so we, we understand a bit about how, you know, what the dosages are among ferrets. But there's a kind of a big difference between a ferret and a human. <laughs> you, can't, you can't just assume. So those are some of the first experiments. And I'll, it'll be really exciting for me as a scientist, right, to, to see, you know, how that all plays out. And I, when I think of, you know, getting back to this, you know, treating people like adults and then seeing what kinds of things that society can do, right? Okay, and yeah. one of the sad things in our society now, right, is voices cannot be heard. They're censored. And, you know, we're seeing this politically, but we're also seeing this scientifically. Okay. And so, for example, when... Um, hydroxychloroquine, right, was debated and it was rolled around and there was a controversy around it. Right. And physicians, you know, would say, you know, there's a long history of this anti-malarial drug and I choose to give my patients and that's completely within the purview of medical science, right? That's 
I mean, it's an art and a science and basically doctors are able to prescribe things off label, right? Okay. They personalize the medicine. They think they, if they think that this particular medication due to their training and their intuition, they can give you something that's approved for one thing and give it to you for something that's a little different, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's their judgment. Well, for hydroxychloroquine, you know, people that suffer from lupus take, have to take uh, hydroxychloroquine as a part of their long going, ongoing treatment. I mean, interesting. It's cheap. I mean, it's like a dollar a dose, right? Hydroxychloroquine. Okay. And, you know, it's been around for a long time. It's a derivative of, of chloroquine, which is an anti-malarial drug. So it's, it's really, really well known. And the physicians were saying, for the first time in my professional career, I was told how to practice medicine. And you're going, in terms of not, oh, in terms of like, hey, you're not allowed to prescribe. You're not allowed. Even right. though before it was always, hey, you're the expert, you know the patient. <laughs> Um, exactly. You're going to be able to decide whether or not you should be, yeah. man. And do you think, I mean, would you have to guess there, there's a politicization behind that? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, and even, I mean, I, I, not that I'm a conspiracy person yet you can easily imagine, right? I mean, Gilead stock went through the roof with that early news about remdesivir. Okay. There's huge jackpots and their executives are cashing out or whatever. Uh, and, and then remdesivir turns out to be not very effective, right? And so the stock crashes. I mean, when I yeah. say not very effective, they're still looking at it uh, from the point of view of the, its effectiveness when applied early. What they're finding okay. out is that, right, it only shortened the hospital stay. It really didn't reduce death in the severe cases. And okay. you know, that's really where you want it. So the, the work is ongoing. For hydroxychloroquine, the data is also very, very similar in that um, one of the things that was kind of interesting uh, was the amount of dosages, where the, the, a lot of the clinical trials that they were being applied, either the dosages were like really, really high, right? Okay. Or it was without, you know, with or without, you know, zinc or, and a common antibiotic called azithromycin. At any rate, you know, that those clinical trials are still going on. Hydroxychloroquine also is not, I think, going to be very effective. You know, I think it's accepted now that even though there was like all this hope and hype and politicization. Around the hydroxychloroquine it, it, thing. Right. It still kind of ended up, yeah, maybe not so effective. But, okay. you know, there are other antivirals. You know, there's one produced by Fuji Film in Japan. You know, and approach. then just out of curiosity, how did a film company? Because I also saw like Kodak uh -huh. being involved, and so I'm just curious how yeah. Fuji Film and Kodak are at all. Yeah, well, Fuji Film, after the collapse of the film business, right, went into pharmaceuticals and also oh. went into life science supply. So a friend of mine works for Fuji Film. Um, and he's selling like bioreactors to pharmaceutical companies, you know, specialized, you know, production equipment. Okay. Jeez. So yeah, there, there's a diversity there. I mean, who was it? Uh, Ajinomoto is a, is a seasonings company in Japan. Okay. You know, okay. They make MSG. That's what they're known for. I mean, I grew up off of stuff <laughs> and, and Ajinomoto has a very sophisticated, right? Drug discovery operation, you know, where they've gone into pharmaceuticals as well. So how you know, weird. 
Yeah. But, you know, you're talking about businesses that have to adapt to the times, right? And they they can reinvent themselves. It's happened. Um, But getting back to, you know, the topic of, you know, the long game. Yeah. I remember uh, a couple of years ago talking to a friend of mine about the pandemic of 1918. Okay. And the question was, well, it didn't really leave a lasting cultural mark here in the United States. Yeah. And it was really interesting thinking about it. But then you put it in the context of World War One, and then you put it in the context of a lot of suffering that happened. You had protests against mask wearing, right? Okay. I mean, you had the second peak worse than the first, and a lot of interesting things about that. And, and then you think, yeah, and they didn't have nearly the uh, ability, right, for diagnostics. They didn't have any kind of therapeutics. Yeah. And, you know, there were no vaccines, right? And, and you just say, you know, people have suffered through epidemics and pandemics for a long time. You know, it was, it, it was, it's just so interesting, you know, to, to look back a little bit and say, you know, what was it like during uh, the Black Plague where you got a third of the population that's just gone? You know, what right. is that like? I, it just, you, you can't imagine that kind of suffering, right? Yeah. However, you know, at the same time today, I'm sensitive to, right? Uh, I mean, I've got three uh, children who are not in school, right, due to the pandemic. Okay. You know, two of them, right, are in middle school, and they're, they're doing remote classes, Remote right? classes, yeah. And I think, statistically, 25% of children in the United States cannot, due to technology or their home environment or their connectivity because they live in a rural area, yeah. They can't access online learning. Gotcha. It's a showstopper. I mean, yeah. it, it's a non-starter for them. It's like 56 million school-age children in the United States, and you have a full 25% of them that can't access this. Yeah. It's not good. And right? even even just to uh, now shift it a little bit, um, what um, how has this affected your home life? in the last, you know, the last months, just how has uh, COVID affected, you know, school or even just, you know. You know, I, I, how do I say, I, I live in a nice neighborhood in a big house and I'm fine. Okay, yeah. I mean, you know what I mean? I, I, I'm like used pretty to much home and, you know, other than having kids underfoot, you know, it's, it, there, there really hasn't been, you know, a, uh, a big anything crazy. Impact. Right. I mean, it's like, like with anybody, uh, how do I say who, who has means, right. It, that, that's not, you know, without my own personal situation, it's not a problem. What yeah. I am, thinking of, right. Our parents are not working from home or working from home is not an option. Right. For right? the person that, you know, you know, I can think of so many instances where people cannot work from home. I mean, they have to actually be out there and doing their work. Yeah, yeah, the warehouse industry, the service industry. Yeah, what, yeah. what do you do with kids at home? Yeah. Or, right, they, they've lost their job, and, right, they're looking for other kinds of work. You know, th- these are the kinds of things that I, I, I think about, and more more than just think about it. it's like yeah yeah you know how how can i uh i'm just one person you know what kind of change could i affect but yeah 
And that's hard. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, there were so many people that were so motivated and wanting to do something more. Yeah, like, for the community or for yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got involved in a couple of efforts, right? One was Masks Now. It was a mask, a pro-masking organization to organize sewists, people who were seamstresses. Oh, right. They so made masks and make it available, right? Yeah. Not And not as a substitute for medical grade, but again, to reduce the spread, right? Yeah. Uh, and then there are a couple of other projects that were, were, were being discussed, and it was kind of fun with, the, with my scientist friends uh, as far as, you know, how... Uh, we could put, you know, extra uh, effort into volunteer kinds of organizations. But it's interesting, you know, these many, many months later, you know, how, you know, how has that turned out? And say the mask effort really was a worthwhile one. Another one was on contact tracing, developing a contact tracing app, right? Okay. Uh, much like what the recent Apple uh, updates done in terms of being able to alert you to who you may have been in touch with, right? Right. As far as uh, contacting you. Uh, but those kinds of things never got off the ground because the testing infrastructure and the contact tracing infrastructure just really was com just inadequate, right? Yeah. And I'm and curious, what, like, what do you think is the middle ground or areas of middle ground between um, constrictions put on society versus the the keeping your freedom part of it where like where do you yeah. think obviously it's a very complicated question bunch of different people different scenarios stuff like that um but i guess is there any mm. scenarios where you've where you've seen a good middle ground achieved or do you think you know we're screwed and it's gonna be tough no matter what yeah i think it's the latter where it's going to be tough however um, Pfizer, right? Yeah. Three weeks ago said that they'd be ready with 30 million doses by the end of this year. Okay. Yeah. The fact they've got this exciting data yesterday, they also said yesterday, they're going to be able to produce 50 million doses by the end of this year. Now, you might say, well, but we have a lot of first responders, hospital workers, that kind of thing. Yeah, that number is about 20 million. Yeah. Right? And then if you add, I think, another 30 million who are uh, the, the most vulnerable, right? The elderly in particular, right? Or people with high risk factors. Yeah. And you say, well, but if obesity is a risk factor, Dale, the number goes up to 100 million. It's like, okay, fair enough. Right? Yeah. But that's that's Pfizer before the end of this year. And then okay. Moderna has already said that they have doses for 20 million before the end of this year, okay? And so these are the two leading candidates, right? We're expecting the Moderna data to come out pretty soon, very likely before the end of this month. Okay. Uh, logistically, I mean, I was reading about uh, Pfizer's logistics effort that's outside of Operation Warp Speed uh, why they chose to go their own way to figure out how to dispense, frankly, a very difficult product. So the Pfizer product has to be stored on dry ice, minus yeah. 80. Yeah. You, you can't buy a minus 80 refrigerator at your local Best Buy. I mean, right. it, it's, it's just a, a frost-free freezer. It doesn't, it doesn't even get down to zero degrees Celsius. And we're talking minus 80. Okay? Yeah, that's nuts. <laughs> In the scientific realm, a non-frost-free freezer, okay, are still sold 
these are minus 20s. They build up ice, oh, right? Yeah. Because, you know, when you have a frost-free one, it cycles up and it warms up and it ruins your, your reagents. Well, anyway, they, Pfizer has developed its own packaging, 16 by 16 by 22 inches, okay? okay. That can hold 5,000 doses at minus 80 for 10 days. Oh wow! No way. Think about that. Yeah, so no, that they sounds can ship amazing. It, right? They, they, and they've chartered twenty jets, twenty for okay. daily flights around the country, right? To distribute. Man. I mean, a lot. I mean, you know, sixteen by sixteen by twenty-two is not that big. Yeah, yeah. On a cargo jet, right? I know. Yeah, so, I know. When I'm just thinking of how much money Pfizer can just, you know, is going to be. To, uh, yeah. just selling well, in terms of right the packaging i mean if they're even helping selling the packaging it's like oh my gosh their entire business well, well thankfully the other vaccines don't need well i think the moderna one needs a minus 20 uh and and that's easily enough handled the the pfizer one was the difficult one because of this minus 80 requirement the novavax one is regular refrigeration so the and you know the ones that are that are coming down the line, you know the logistics are going to be difficult. But nonetheless, right? The logistics are being worked on. Yeah. And um, you know, I, I'm trying to remember the name of the report. Was it from factory? Yeah, from the fact. Anyway, uh, yeah, from the factory to the front lines. It was in September that Operation Warp Speed basically had a 15 or 18 page plan on what their logistics operations were and okay. it was called from factory to the front lines right? okay. gotcha. and you know that this stuff is is hard to produce it, i mean it's got to be injection grade you know think about all that goes into something injection grade borosilicate glass is a certain type of glass that is in that they use for injectables there's only you know a few sources for borosilicate glass how okay. do you get billions of vials i don't want to think about that yeah no, but it's it's, it's in the works right now you might say well then i i one i can't foresee a lockdown type of thing in the united states i can't foresee well, even this sort of spec second spike, spike in cases, Dale, could you see the, the deaths going up? Right. Yes, but we have about 40 different therapies undergoing phase three clinical trials. No, I think the number is about 30. A lot. Yeah. A lot of different therapies. A lot of them are completely new because they're specific against the coronavirus, right? Okay. We talk about monoclonal antibodies. They're very specific to sop up, you know, the virus so that the, the body can sort of intervene. Uh, on the genomic side, an enormous, I mean, we'll be studying this for a long, long time. I mean. Yeah, I mean, this is, yeah, this is gonna be studied, I, I imagine, yeah. just for right. hundreds of years. Problem, but the acute problem, right, is good training for the next one. Very Why? much so. I mean, one of the reasons that we were so unprepared was that a lot of the plans were around the flu. The expectation was we'd have a flu pandemic. The expectation okay. that it would, would not be this clustering super spreader asymptomatic thing, 
right? Oh, right. Like the expectation was that you'd be able to see who was sick and then you just ask yeah. the people that were sick to, hey, yeah. please don't go anywhere. But instead yeah. it's this kind of yeah. mystery. Really mystery, wild, difficult thing to get your arms around. And you look at what uh, Germany and the Czech Republic and France and the UK, they all had masks. Okay. And it makes you think, yeah, they were practicing social distancing. What happened, right? Why a second wave? And, you know, they're, they're imposing lockdowns. And, and I talked with an acquaintance in Paris, right? She's been living there for 15 years. And it was, it was just last week. It was like, yeah, it's kind of scary in terms of the limitations that they have, right? right. As far as the number of cases and, and you have to say, yeah, it, it is a nasty, nasty bug, right? Yeah. And, you know, the, the government response is different. You know, you can say, well, uh, the European approach, you know, uh, it's one way to do it. I know that politically in the U.S. it's just not going to pass muster, right? Oh, oh yeah. In public health of... officials, you know, understand that it's going to be really hard to convince the political leaders that, yeah, we're going to go ahead and just, you know, walk down. Yeah. What do you think, um, you were mentioning still like having reason for optimism and I guess yeah. what are, what are your, uh, what's your reasoning behind optimism yeah. and what's kind of the timeline of that optimism yeah it's what we're living through right now approval of new medica uh, therapeutics okay and advances with the vaccines plural and then what what is defined as a therapeutic like what is that um i guess yeah that's my question so, yeah so it could be for example this japanese antiviral from fujifilm right there's a clinical trial going on with that. Okay. Uh, the uh, Regeneron, the monoclonal antibody cocktail that President Trump was treated with, yeah. is in phase three clinical trials, right? Okay. And that's one of about, I think there's maybe 12 or 15 different monoclonals. <laughs> no, I, I'm sorry. There's a lot more. I think there's the number is like 80 or 90 different <laughs> monoclonals. I mean, uh, uh, Regeneron themselves, they isolated 150 different patients' T-cells. Interesting. To, to, to test, right? Uh, to make monoclonal antibodies and screen for their most potent ones. And then huh. they came up with a combination of two that they decided to move forward with. And, uh, and then the other approaches, right? Um, so th that's what we mean by a therapeutic in terms of, of a drug or a medication that you can give people with moderate or severe COVID. Now, one of the interesting things about the, the uh, vaccine, the vaccine is not to prevent infection, even though that's a secondary goal. Right. The vaccine is to prevent moderate or severe COVID. Okay. There is a difference, right? Yeah. Now they're going to see whether or not it's helpful with regard to the infection piece, but that's not their primary goal. Yeah. And it was pretty exciting to think, you know, over 90% effective. What that meant was they had 97 individuals in the placebo group with moderate or severe COVID. And really? They may have had one or zero in the vaccinated group, right? It's possible that somebody got a, the vaccine and it's possible that, you know, that person, the one out of a hundred, right? 
still got infected and had moderate COVID. Yeah. The goal of vaccine is to reduce the, the death, right? And if you can keep people out of the hospital, right? Yeah, and if it's more recovery. of just like a mild cold or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So and what do you, around, hmm. um, in terms of that, that kind of um, the science around the death and things like that, what, um, I guess, what's your level of optimism as it relates to specifically the death metric um, or, you know, hmm. uh, who, yeah. in, like the, the improving of that or um, I'm curious around if it's just certain two types of people that are also um, hmm. more likely to, to die from this. And then even a third question of mine is, is even more just around like, I know we talk about masks a lot, but like, I, I, I'm almost kind of disappointed in how just purely healthy living principles haven't been as much encouraged or excellent point stuff like that. And so I'm really curious about kind of the details on that death rate, but then also just details around simply principles of, of healthier living, sure. diet and exercise or whatever that may entail. Sure, sure. Well, to tackle the death piece, it is the vaccine in addition to people recovering from the virus. Okay. You get, you know, what is that level of herd immunity where that super spreader bounces off? Okay. Right? Yeah, right. You're almost like just trying to um, take away the effects of the super spreader individually. Exactly. Because as soon as you take away that effect, then it, it yep. loses its, a lot of its scariness. Exactly. It, okay. it doesn't, it's not going to, we're not going to do this. It's going to do the exact opposite. Right. Right. And uh, the CDC, due to serological studies, right, they say that there are about 10 times the number of recovered cases as far as people that have had, have had exposure to the virus and have recovered. Right. So what does that mean? Well, we've had 10 million cases in the US already. It means there's 100 million people that have had it and recovered. Or have uh, it. It's like, really? Well, maybe that 50 million doses from Pfizer that could be all we need. Yeah. Another 20 million from Moderna, you know, you get to a point, right, where there's enough of, of the recovered plus, right, the vaccine. Yeah. That, that will, the population is just so massive in terms of kind of having some type of herd immunity or something like that. Right. Then the other piece, right, as far as the death goes, right, once you start protecting the most vulnerable with the vaccine, you expect that death rate to go down. Okay. Yeah. Why? Very They're much not so. getting severe moderate COVID, right? The vaccine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you see, you know, that's why the news was so positive from Pfizer. Yeah. Because they were expecting maybe 60 or 70% effectiveness. They weren't expecting 90%. Oh, gotcha. So they're oh, even more kind of just yeah. happy around. Okay. Right. That all the effort to get a vaccine to people, you know, yes, it's, challenge because you need to get people to come in twice, you know, a couple of weeks apart kind of thing for, yeah. for full effectiveness. Um, but I think that the other, when I think about effectiveness, right. And percentages, 
if you have something that's 60% effective and only 60% of people are willing to take it, then you say, well, how are we ever going to get there? Oh, right. right yeah. But if you have, you know, 90% effectiveness and 60% of people willing to take it, then you say, hey, that's a much bigger number. Yeah. Now, and it's just easier to, right, to win. manage from a public health point of view. And, and, you know, the things that we've learned and, and, you know, the challenges and the struggles, you know, they're real. And, you know, I think, you know, the challenge, right, is, is getting people to understand that um, there are simple precautions to take and you really, there are things that are just very low risk, right? And okay. also there are things that you can do to help yourself. So for example, right, early on, it was suggested that vitamin D would really help. And sure enough, a flood of studies have come out to show the effectiveness of vitamin D. Yeah. And, you know, I'd say, really? Yeah, really. Yeah, which is nice. I mean. And, you know, how are you going to get vitamin D? Yes, sunlight. And if you're in a northern clime, right, you know, just supplement. I mean, it's not going to hurt you at all. Yeah. And then, like you mentioned, in terms of diet and exercise, I mean, it's like, isn't that a given, right? Right. Yet, you know, the scary thing, I guess, about the virus is that, yeah, it, it you know, depending on the person's immune system, it, it can uncover weaknesses in the immune system. And yeah. These, these relatively rare cases, right? And okay. there are rare, right? Yeah. And, you know, and the hard part is, right, the lazy journalist will just go ahead and talk about the worst case scenario of somebody being dead in four days. Without yeah, without, you know. That was like one in a million. Or, you know, they publicized the reinfected people, right? So there are cases where people got infected twice with two distinct viruses, meaning two viral strains. It was still coronavirus, but it was, they got infected the second time. Yeah. But the total number out of the how many millions have been infected worldwide with the number is probably about 40 million now it's five you have five individuals who've gotten infected twice oh no way 40 million really <laughs> thanks a lot yeah completely what do so, you and i'm curious about that um this is kind of on the fear-mongering section but like yeah. where do you think where do you think just news media um has kind of not, you know, might, might just be giving red herrings or unhelpful information or. It's, it's been a real problem, right? It's been a real problem. Uh, How much of it? Yeah. I guess it's one of those things where uh, like, for example, even with the Pfizer news, right. They, they confused, you know, the end point in terms of what the vaccine was designed to do. They say it prevents infection. It's like, well, no, it's no infection. So uh, it's, it's just it's things like that, right? Where, yeah, uh, you know, I, I, and, and, and that's challenged as far as uh, in, in many ways, you can say that uh, perhaps even with, you know, this sort of pandemic fatigue, you know, for people to understand that, yeah, the risks are, are not high if you're outdoors, Right. And it really, it makes a lot of, you know, does it make a lot of sense to wear a mask outdoors? It's like, well, no, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. Interesting. And, you know, this, this idea of, you know, being a bit more enlightened in terms of, right. Understanding where the risks are. Yeah. Right. 
And, you know, is, you know, is Thanksgiving going to be a real risk within the family? And then a lot of it has to do with this idea of social bubbles and people limiting, right? You know, yeah. how, how many people they interact with. And if they just limit it to a certain group of, I don't know, three or five families or entities, right? And that, and just leave it at that. It's like, it, it can actually work quite well. They talk about it as a social bubble. Yeah. One, you know, one interesting concept from a person uh, at, at, in Berlin, he was a leading in, infectious disease specialist at the Charité Hospital there. Uh, I heard an interview uh, from him uh, a week ago. It was really, really good because he was talking about for Thanksgiving and for holidays for people to consider limiting their, their activities the week before. Ideally a full week, but at least a couple days before. Oh, right. So that when you're going to the Thanksgiving dinner, then you're less likely, gotcha. To be exposed. And I'm like, that is extremely useful bit of information. Yeah. Why doesn't a reporter take that up? (laughs) You know? Oh, right. In terms (laughs) of. People and say, hey, you know, public health tip kind of thing. Right? Instead of, you know, drooling over whatever numbers and yeah, or, or focusing in on, you know, make, I think is it North Dakota is having a real struggle now, right? Yeah. I think I heard it was, yeah. Or South Dakota. Yeah. In terms of, you know, hospitals and danger being overrun or what have you um, and say, okay, yeah, there are hotspots where people need to be more aware and, and take precautions. I fully understand that. Yeah. But the U.S. is such a diverse place. It's a terrible place for a pandemic. It's a great place for innovation. <laughs> it's a great place. For <laughs> it's a great place for individual, you know, individualism. Yeah. It's a terrible place for a pandemic. Yeah. Now, right. You look at the numbers in Europe, the numbers in Europe are spiking up and right. And, you know, whether or not they will be overrun kind of remains to be seen. But they also have the advantage, right? of the increased medical care. Um, it was interesting, I was looking at the French numbers, right? And it looked like the, the cases and the deaths were tracking quite closely. Okay. And then it made me think about how we in the United States classify a death. And you may have heard this, but yeah, it's true. There's only so many reasons for the cause of death in a death certificate. Right. And there is, Frankly, you know, the hospitals are getting a premium for treating COVID. Right. And people that are dying with COVID versus people dying of COVID, it gets pretty, pretty mixed up there. Right. Yeah. And and just like, did you, um, that mix up, it seems, it seems like such a impossible mystery to solve in terms of how many actually died of COVID and how many yeah. died with it. Have yeah. you, have you seen any gold nuggets kind of in, in hunting through um, that nuance at all? Or is it just kind of? Yeah. Well, if, when you look at the excess death numbers and some, some creative analysis around excess deaths, yeah. Yeah, it does suggest that the number that we currently have for fatalities, what's 230,000? Yeah. Overshooting it by about a third. Over, so even that number is being overshot kind of maybe by a third. Right. Due yeah. To different things in the reporting, as well as, you know, 
when people actually die of it versus with it, you know, that distinction. Yeah. And, and I mean, on the, you know, one of the intriguing things is the deaths from other causes. Yeah. Cause I was, I was just about to ask that in terms of, um, the, those other caught, like, do you see any other big cause that's also yeah. right next to the death of COVID in terms of old age or heart disease or, yeah, well, the, the amount of overdose and suicides, you know, they're up 20, 30%. Okay. So then you're, so then are you even saying that like, you see like even suicides, you're, you're seeing stuff where it's a suicide, but it still says COVID on it. No. Um, what we're saying is that there is a lot of excess when you just go by excess deaths, Okay. And try and calculate into what the COVID number is. Okay. Yeah. That there's this big chunk of excess deaths that Better. imply that the COVID number is fudging upward. Oh, gotcha. You look at the total excess deaths, and they're saying, "Wow, there's a lot more." Well, think about this, right? Half the number of transplants never took place. What happened to people waiting for a transplant? Well, they died. Too okay. Bad. Too bad. Yeah. You might say, well, isn't that a necessary procedure? Uh, no, transplants are considered actually optional. Yeah. What was cut out. Think about all the cancers, all the cancer screenings. I mean, these plummeted, you know, 60, 70%, right? Okay. 100,000 cases of abuse, child abuse, yeah. were not reported in just two months of school closures in the spring. Really? You're calling terrible. So, yeah. So, uh, you know, we, we have certain rational scientists that are saying there's a lot of harm, a lot of harm being done just from the school and from the other sort of side effects, right, of limiting people's movement. And some, right, people were just scared to death, right, of even people undergoing chemotherapy was down like 40%. I mean, it was crazy. Oh, Wow. People are, people are, I mean, they're dying of cancer. They're going in for chemotherapy treatment, but they don't want to die of COVID. Right. So they're at like, and so they're, and so, so all these excess deaths, right? Gets yeah. all, gets baked into that. And yeah, a person died of cancer, but it's part of the excess deaths of what we're living through, right? So then you say, yeah, we can't get out of this fast enough. And, you know, we'll find out what those harms were looking back. Yeah. Right now, right there just isn't the political maturity yet. I, I think there's enough voices where parents are, are actually putting their foot down and applying a lot of pressure, right? In terms of getting schools back open? Schools back open, right. Okay. In particular. And you yeah. say, well, yeah, you know, how does that work with testing? And how, you know, how has that worked with private schools that had some level of opening? And it's a complicated, politically fraught subject. Yeah. Nonetheless, I, I mean, knock on wood, right? We're lucky that coronavirus does not affect the young. I yeah. Mean, it would be such a different picture, right? Oh, if, completely. Yeah, if we had a lot of dead kids around, I mean, that just would be even, I mean, it's bad enough, right? Yeah, I mean, that'd be really... Uh, yeah. very scary. Um, just out of curiosity on the kids side, what's, um, the, you know, do you, 
do you talk to other parents and like, you know, how many out of 10 parents all want their kids to go back to school? Is it like a 10 out of 10 thing? Or is it like a, you know, what, what do you think different parents are thinking right now? Just, yeah, I think that a lot of parents like myself just put a brave face on it. They just do the best they can. Just it's whatever. They know that no matter what they say, there is just going to be on deaf ears, right? Yeah, like it does. You, yeah, you can say anything to the school, and they're just going to go, "Okay, but we're still doing it." So exactly, it's just kind of you're going to do whatever. Yeah, exactly. And you know, while while I'm sent, like we talked about before, I'm sensitive to the needs of others. uh, It's really hard because there's so little that individuals can do at this point, right? Yeah. Other than, you know, making it clear politically that lock, another round of lockdown is just, there's no appetite at all for it. Yeah, completely. And, you know, after what, we're at month nine now, right? Yeah. That, uh, you know, the summer, you know, we, we, I was hopeful that the summer the cases would go down, but they didn't. <laughs> Right. I thought that with warmer, drier uh, weather, it would be uh, better, but it wasn't. Yeah. Um, and and yet, right? Another re- reason for optimism, right? At one point, they were warning they, the media, was warning us against a twindemic of flu plus coronavirus. Okay. But the statistics from Brazil show that due to mask wearing and social distancing, guess what? Influenza went down 96%. Oh, right. So that like, yeah. Their hands, people are, right? Yeah, just after people are practicing one thing, it it tends to lower the spread of the other thing as well. Yeah. And so, you know, that is really good news. Now, I think a lot of people are getting their flu shots on top of that, which is also really good. So, you know, there's going to be some really good things happening. Um, okay. And, and, and that's, you know, the, with in particular, right, the, the vaccine news is really, really exciting. And uh, I can say that the end is near. Okay. And, and now I'm just kind of curious um, from a personal perspective, like what, um, obviously, this book, the book's coming out November 12th, right? Uh, yeah, it had to slip for a couple of days. I'm having trouble getting it formatted as an ebook. But as okay. a matter of fact, this afternoon, uh, I, the ebook is in its last stages of development. So, okay. J- yeah. Well, just out of curiosity, I I uh, I was <laughs> I was using Microsoft Word to format my entire ebook. Uh-huh. Are you? Uh, is that what you're using, or are you using like a book software? Um, actually, I'm using a professional. Oh, cool. Okay. I'm using Microsoft Word, he's having me go through a document in Microsoft Word because I assume Microsoft Word has some XML or other capability? Um, so at least how I did it is I really just tried to to check all the boxes of making my book look really official, have, have some decent margins on it and stuff like yeah. that. But then I just, um, I was able to just upload that dot .docx file to Kindle. Oh. And, and so, format. Yeah, yeah, and so potentially a ton of e-readers are just able to yep. understand, sure. yeah, um, sure. the, the so, Microsoft Word file. So as a matter of fact, just before our call here, I was looking at the ebook in the Kindle 
software they have yeah. in the different tablet and phone formats. And then, you know, looking because I needed images, right? Because it's stuff that you just can't describe in words. Yeah, know, without. Data, like 15 illustrations. They even threw in a cartoon for fun. Hey, there um, we go. But it was, it was really nice seeing it on the screen thinking, man, that Kindle version's really nice. However, oh. I'm running on my PC, you know, but it's, it's kind of fun. And then it's been a while since I've read through from beginning to end. And as I'm reading it through this time, it was like, oh, it's pretty well written. I wonder who wrote it. <laughs> anyway, so it's, it's fun. Okay. And already I'm thinking, right, what, what I would follow this up with. And so I have some ideas about the genomics business in general. Yeah. Or like the sort of the so what about genomics? Um, uh, why is it one of the industries of the future, right? Between artificial intelligence, nanomaterials, and genomics, these are the industries of the future uh, because there's still so much to learn. I mean, this is a huge, huge undertaking that, you know, on the biology side, it's just so open-ended, right? Like, for okay. example, I mean, CRISPR was discovered and awarded a Nobel Prize just this year, right? CRISPR, I'm not, I'm not sure who CRISPR, CRISPR is. is a method of genome engineering, okay, okay. technique, and it was a naturally occurring phenomena from bacteria to plants, okay? Hmm as a rudimentary immune system. Interesting. Protect against viruses and other invaders, okay? Yeah, wow. And, right, scientists discovered this naturally occurring phenomenon, and CRISPR is, to spare you the details, it's an amazing tool, another tool in the biotechnology toolbox. And it was so powerful that the Nobel Prize Committee awarded it with a Nobel Prize. Wow. Yeah. So no, it, that's pretty and, nice. And as far as tools go, yeah, it's going to be applied. It's already being applied to agriculture. It's got, It's already being applied to diagnostics. It's already being applied, right, to just basic research. A pretty amazing and remarkably um, versatile tool as far as, you know, scientists just come up with all kinds of ideas again and again uh, uh, in terms of how they can leverage it. Interesting. Well, um, here, we'll, we'll call it good um, for this conversation, but please, uh, uh -huh. once again, uh, plug the book and then also, you know, your website uh, and then just anything else you want to sure. kind of be remembered by. Sure. Well, I th I'd say my parting message is calm down, keep calm. The, this pandemic is almost over. I see the end. And I'd say as far as, you know, the book is written for the non-expert and it's the biotechnology and the biology behind diagnostics, therapeutics, and vaccines on the way to a cure uh, for COVID-19. And then what was the title again? COVID-19 from Chaos to Cure. The uh, book website is my first and last name, daleyuzuki.com. And I blog about industry vertical that in, around genomics at yuzuki.org. Okay, cool. All right. Well, sounds good, Dale. Uh, thank All you right. very much. And I'm glad uh, we could have this conversation. Yeah. Nice meeting you, Joe. All right. You too. Yeah. Bye.